You're listening to Chris Farrell's On Watch podcast from Judicial Watch. I'm Chris Farrell, and this is On Watch. Welcome, everybody, to On Watch, the Judicial Watch podcast, where we take a deep dive behind the headlines to give you information that the mainstream media just simply won't. We also make an effort to uncover some lost history and to try to explain the inexplicable. Uh, today, we've got a real treat for you. We have uh, Judicial Watch attorney Michael Bakesha, uh, the man who uh, litigated the, the Clinton sock drawer case, a case that all of you will become familiar with one way or another over the next few months. Uh, and we'll get to the details of that case and how it all played out. But first, I want to ask you to please subscribe to our podcast, whether you're watching us on YouTube or listening on one of the uh, podcast platforms, Spotify, et cetera. Please subscribe, leave us a rating, uh, a comment, email us, let us know what you think or what you'd like us to, to dig into. Uh, and we really appreciate you taking the time to watch and to listen. So joining us today is my friend and colleague, Michael Bekesha, attorney with Judicial Watch. Michael, you are the man. <laughs> you are the man that litigated the Clinton sock drawer yeah, case. Yeah, I appreciate you having me on to talk about one of my losses. <laughs> yeah, no one likes losses. But if you're going to lose a case, this is a great case to lose, at least because of the decision, because of what came out of it. Uh, and I always say no one wants to talk about losses, <laughs> but this is a good one to lose. Um, so for those people who are attention deficit uh, <laughs> constrained, if you were to give a quick overview, a two-minute description of what the whole Clinton sock drawer case is about, why is it relevant? Why should people care about it? Yeah, so the Clinton sock drawer case, uh, President Trump refers to it as the Clinton socks case. So it's the same thing. He forgets the drawer, but, you know, Clinton socks is a little bit catchier. Sure. Um, while he was president, uh, President Clinton created audio tapes with a historian, a uh, little over roughly 79 or so tapes. Um, on these tapes was President Clinton being president. He would take phone calls with members of Congress. Right. He would talk to foreign leaders. He would ask policy positions. Um, recently, um, the historian author um, Taylor, Taylor Branch, Branch right. Um, gave an interview with the Daily Caller and said, oh, yeah, I mean, some of the stuff was, you know, pretty high-level stuff. Yeah, I'm sure it's classified material. It, had to it be. was. It, Osama bin Laden and cruise missiles was uh, something that was discussed on the tape, something that surely was classified at that time. And so they had these conversations in the White House. The conversations were set up by the White House operations officers. Um, the tapes were subsequently kept in the White House during Clinton's tenure. Um, and when Clinton left office, he took the tapes with him. Uh, Taylor Branch eventually wrote a book. We read the book. We saw what he talked about on these tapes in the book. We said, wait a second. These things sound like presidential records. Mm -hmm. So being Judicial Watch, what did we do? We, we sent a FOIA request. <laughs> right. <laughs> you know, and we got an answer where Archive said, well, we don't think these are presidential records, so you don't get them. And we sued. We sued because, you know, that's what I do. <laughs> <laughs> and um, we were in federal court here in Washington, D.C., and we made the argument there's presidential official government information on these tapes. These tapes should be made available to the public because it would be fascinating to hear President Clinton 
talking about what he was doing on a daily basis. Especially and, since Taylor Branch had already taken the material and written a book about it. Absolutely. Right? So. Absolutely. But, you know, hearing the real words of the president, sure. uh, Taylor Branch, what he did was he apparently went into his car after each interview and wrote down everything he remembered because he didn't actually have the tapes when he was writing the books. I see. I so see. we really wanted the firsthand, the actual tapes, you know, President Clinton being president, making presidential decisions, having presidential conversations. We wanted that information. Justice Department or archives said no. Justice Department came in. Justice Department was defending archives. The Justice Department attorney in the case said, those aren't presidential records. And even if they were presidential records, it doesn't matter. The President of the United States decided they were personal records, took it with him when he left office, and there's nothing the government can do about it. That was the position of the Justice Department in 2010. Uh, the federal court, the judge, Amy Berman Jackson of the District Court in D.C., uh, agreed with the government. She, uh, she said that under the Presidential Records Act, the President has the sole authority to designate what is personal and what is presidential. Hmm, that sounds very interesting. And then also, I guess the second part of that was that nobody can second guess the president. That's correct. Once the decision is made, once the president has left office, end of story. Just so, so somebody at the archives can't say, hey, wait a minute, I think you might have something. Or somebody in Congress, some committee of Congress can't come in and say, oh, no, 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 we believe you should give us X, Y, and Z. That's correct. And, you know, the, way, the reason the Presidential Records Act is set up like that, because, I mean, from a policy standpoint, that doesn't really make sense, right? Because you would want the re records of the president to be preserved. If somebody, you know, had records that you thought were presidential, would, had historical value, oh, you would think archives should be able to go get it down the road. However, we have separation of powers. Right. We have the Constitution that gives the executive the authority to do what the president wants with his records, with his office. And Congress can't come in and interfere with that and micromanage how he's handling his records. So this is very important stuff. That I mean, that's sort of the fast... Not even fast. That's a, a, a more, uh, that's a great explanation that most people have no real comprehension of or understanding of the circumstances. Now, you wrote an excellent Wall Street Journal opinion piece, editorial, based upon your experience litigating this case. Yeah, everybody wants to hear from somebody that loses. <laughs> <laughs> what did, when did that Wall Street Journal article, when was that published? Do you recall? Uh, that was probably about two months ago. Okay, so. Um, what was the reaction that you got from friends, colleagues, not so friends? <laughs> what was the what was the interaction or the, the feedback you, you received? You know, friends, colleagues, people I haven't spoken to in 20 years. Um, <laughs> suddenly. <laughs> suddenly, you know, you get a text message, you get an email, get sometimes a phone call. Yeah. Um, was very favorable. Uh, people were fascinated. They were interested in, you know, this intersection of the Presidential Records Act. Um, my involvement, you know, was I defending President Trump? Am I going to be his lawyer? Right, am right. I, you know, am I auditioning to be his attorney general in the next administration? <laughs> you know, you get all sorts of Which you questions. can neither confirm nor deny. That's the, the way Washington works. <laughs> that is true. You know, so you get all these questions. 
But then you also get a lot of hate mail. Yeah, I bet. Um, and then, you know, you can go down the rabbit hole of reading the comments online. Don't, don't ever read the comments. <laughs> um, but then also, curiously, the National Review online seemed to um, take offense to my article and seemed to mock it and trash it a little bit. Because they're such wonderful experts, having litigated the case in front of a federal court, they know far better, right? You know, everybody that thinks they're a lawyer or wants to play lawyer on TV has views and, you right. know, they want to share them. <laughs> um, you know, My even, condolences <laughs> on that entire you experience. You know, even former Attorney General Bill Barr got in and, you know, said it was a nonsense of an argument. Um, it seems to be exactly on point. You had a president who decided what he wanted to take and what he wanted, didn't want to take. And then... Uh, a court came in and said he had the authority to do it. So it's, I think it's very relevant. It is. And, you know, a lot of people got hung up on this idea of agency records. So the Presidential Records Act explicitly says it doesn't cover agency records. And, you know, a lot of my critics were saying, well, these weren't records of the president. They were, you know, Department of Defense records or CIA records or, you know, records of these agencies that were provided to the president. Um, that may be true, but that doesn't actually make them agency records. Not when they're in the custody of the chief executive of the United States. Right. So they're, 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 <laughs> two, they're two pieces. And we know this because we sue a lot. That's and we correct. litigate a lot. And, you know, I hate saying we lose a lot um, because we are fighting, you know, we are bringing issues to the court for the first time. Right. Issues that the courts don't address. And we're pushing the envelope to bring transparency to hold politicians in account. And, you know, a lot of the time the courts don't want to go there. Um, well, they should, let, me, let me put it this way. The courts, in my experience, having been watching this for only 24 years here at Judicial Watch, is that the courts are enormously deferential yes. to the position of the Justice Department or the agency justice is representing. So if the Department of Defense says, oh, no, 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 we know that the whole world is aware of something and they're all discussing something and there's been public statements and everything else, we still say this is classified. And so uh, there's a sort of like, I don't know, it's probably not accurate to say like a wink and a nod, but there's, there's a sort of, well, we know that everybody knows this anyway, but the agency or the Justice Department says no, and so we have to rely on their representation. So we're just going to say, OK, and courts do that over and over and over again. They do. So there was this other case where we sought the visitor logs from the Secret Service. White House visitor logs. These are very important. Way back in the Clinton era, we sued very successfully. Uh, it was called WAVES. It was the White House the Workers and Visitors Entry System is how, the, how these records were set up. Bush administration changed it and made them unfoyable. Anyway, tell your story. Yeah, so <laughs> during the Obama administration, right. uh, we sought the records again. Um, and we argued the case up at the D.C. Circuit. And the D.C. Circuit at that time, uh, we had a three-judge panel. And the judge, one of the judges and the one that ruled on the case, wrote the opinion, right. was Judge Garland who uh, now is Attorney General. That seems to ring a bell. <laughs> Our Very now growing. Attorney General in right. charge of the Justice Department, putting forth um, you know, the positions related to Trump and his records. And in that case, Judge Garland said that records created for the president 
by agencies are not agency records. And so, again, looking at the facts of the indictment against President Trump, what the records appear that he had in his possession were records that were created for him by the agencies. A lot of them are his daily presidential briefing. Right. And so those records are not agency records, even though they were creating by, created by the, regi- by the agency. Then Judge Garland said, no, if they were prepared for the president, right. they are here's, here's presidential the o- records. Here's the other dirty little secret about all classified records, and that the entire record classification system of the intelligence community is all built on the idea of the record, the, cl- the classified documents are produced in order to assist the executive in making decisions. So we're protecting this information because it's so special, it's so unique, it's so sensitive. Why? Well, so that ultimately the president, the chief executive, can make decisions based upon this very valuable, sensitive information. That's the reason why we have classified information. And so, you know, even if an agency produced it and it's their product and, you know, uh, it signals intelligence. So the NSA says, oh, no, that's ours. The only reason they're operating, the only reason they're generating this material is for the executive to make decisions. It's his material. And that's because of that, you know, that important document, the Constitution, that says he's well, that what, the thing? commander in chief, right? <laughs> right. I mean, right. he... The president is in charge of our military. Right. He's commander in chief. He can do what he wants. So I, I, I did something radical. I went back and I actually read the court transcript of your argument in, oh, front, no. of, <laughs> in front of Judge Amy Berman Jackson. And uh, so she's going back and forth with you. And she essentially says, well, what do you want me to do? And... You're trying to encourage her to make the right decision and to go ahead and get the records or documents. My reading, my sort of, and I remember being in the courtroom, but my sixth sense on all this is that she was almost baiting you into saying, well, send the marshals out and seize, <laughs> and seize the, the, the tapes. I mean, that was the direction that she was going. She seemed to be, come on, Michael, go ahead and say this. Because doing such a thing would have been off the charts extraordinary, correct? Yeah, because that was 12 years ago, 13 right. years ago. <laughs> Times apparently have right, changed. Right, So, I mean, I, it, in hindsight, reading it, really, that's the, that's the takeaway from me is the notion that anyone would request that law enforcement, whether it's the U.S. Marshal Service acting at the direction of a federal judge or any law enforcement, would go out to a former president and seize records, documents, any item, was unimaginable. It, was, it, was, it wasn't the regular process. It wasn't the uh, sort of the, the deference paid to a former chief executive. And it's just, it's remarkable to see the, Clint, the Clintonian uh, sort of mindset and thinking and the court's deference, and now this extraordinarily aggressive, adversarial, hostile treatment of how Trump was, I mean, it's night and day. It it is, and you know, the other thing that my critics would say is, you know, the indictment doesn't talk about the Presidential Records Act. It only talks about the Espionage Act. And that's part of the problem. It is part of the problem, (laughs) but the Espionage Act, people need to remember, talks about 
whether or not the person in possession of the records is authorized to be in possession of their records. And so there's an intersection with the Presidential Records Act that no one is talking about, which is, is President Trump, as a former president, authorized to have the records that he has in his possession? And the argument goes, when he's president, he collects records. Records are given to him. All the time. He gets to decide what records are presidential, what records are personal. Do they go in box A and box B? According to the indictment, so not even you know speculating, but reading the actual indictment that was filed against the president, it says he received documents, he placed them in boxes. I think that's paragraph two. I believe paragraph three or paragraph four says when he left office at you know, 1201 on January 20th. Right. He took those boxes with him. So what does that mean? Under the Presidential Records Act, he designated records that he was going to keep, and he took those records when he left. He was authorized to do so. So is he authorized to have those records? The Presidential Records Act says he is. The Presidential Records Act seems to suggest he is. And then, you know, everybody makes fun of him because he said, well, I could just declassify things by thinking about it. Well, he's not that far off. Because no, in fact, he's not, he's not off at all. I mean, I, I know that's sort of, people look at that and I think it's a flippant comment or just sort of, uh, but actually what he's saying, the essence, it's kind of like when he said, Obama wiretapped me. Yeah. That's a shorthand way of actually describing what was done to him, but it's it's articulated in a way that is, uh, very condensed and sort of summary and doesn't give the full explanation. But the essence of what he's saying is true. It is, because <clears throat> while he was president, he could show any classified information, any top secret information to whoever he wanted. He had that authority. And so he had the authority to do what he wanted with that record when he was president. So when he was president, he could make the decision to authorize his future non-presidential self to have control of that record. And there's nothing in the indictment that says he didn't do that. I, I, just for a moment, I'll remind or maybe inform our viewers and listeners that uh, very famously, Jimmy Carter, in a speech in Miami, got up and talked about the National Reconnaissance Office and our, our abilities through satellite technology to collect intelligence, both imagery intelligence, signals intelligence. When he did that, he just got up and said it. No one had ever discussed that satellite capability before. And he had made the decision that he was gonna make it a public uh, statement, sort of a muscle flexing effort to show, hey, look, we can see and hear things that you don't think we can. Uh, so that was his decision as commander in chief. Nobody approved it, nobody, I mean, he just did it. Why? Because he could. And that's a, it caused enormous uproar in the intelligence community because people's feathers were ruffled that he just decided to do it unilaterally. But that's what he can do because he's president, so. Um, going forward, uh, I think it's remarkable that the indictment against President Trump uh, doesn't mention the Presidential Records Act at all. To me, it's sort of a conspicuous absence. It screams, there should have, in my view, if he was really kind of dotting with the I's and crossing the T's, there would have been a passing reference as to why it doesn't matter mm -hmm. or why these circumstances are so extraordinary that they moot out anything in the Presidential Records Act. They don't make that argument. 
They don't. And, and everybody needs to remember that indictments are just allegations. They're not facts. It's not proof. Uh, President Trump's lawyers are going to have the opportunity to challenge the indictment in court. The government can put their position you know, forward. So we're going to learn a lot more about what the government and what President Trump thinks about the Presidential Records Act. Yep. Um, it'll be interesting to see if now Attorney General Garland's Justice Department takes a different position from then Judge Garland took. <laughs> it'll be interesting to see if the Justice Department takes a different position than it took for the um, last 13 years. For the last 13 years. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, I'm curious to see if uh, President Trump's lawyers will agree with me and argue what I do in the Wall Street Journal. Yeah. You, maybe you'll be called as an expert witness. <laughs> <laughs> Put under microscope again. I don't know if I, this is enough pressure. Well, here's a case where, you know, you don't know what you know or things kind of play themselves out in an unexpected fashion. And I don't think anybody 13 years ago... Uh, on the Clinton sock drawer case, I know we left kind of frustrated and like, oh, well, you know, we, we took a shot at it. We tried to recover the information, uh, but little did we ever realize that that case would have, would, would feature uh, the way that it does now. Um, before we wrap, any last comments or thoughts about the whole saga of the Clinton sock drawer case? No, I mean, just going to your point there, you've been here 24 years. That's all. I, I'm, at, <laughs> I'm at 14 years, so I'm catching up to you. And it's amazing that over this time, the amount of cases we've litigated yep. and things that we've seen over the years keep popping up. And they keep popping up in different ways. And I mean, I think that's why Judicial Watch is so good at what we do, why we're so strong and why it's so important that we keep doing our work because you never know how our experience is going to play out in the future. Yeah. I mean, I really didn't know at that time that, you know, the questions that Amy Berman Jackson were asking me about, well, how would we go about getting records from President Clinton would be playing out at the FBI right. and at the, you know, senior levels of the Justice Department 13 years later. And I like to remind folks that when you look at the volume of work that Judicial Watch does in open records, both requests and litigation, Syracuse University has, a, has an outside organization called TRAC, Transactional Record something or other center, I forget the exact acronym. But what they do is they look at who's out there using FOIA and other state open records laws. And uh, I think it's important for people to understand the volume not just the volume, but the, the depth of what we're doing. Uh, no one does more FOIA requests than Judicial Watch. No one litigates more than Judicial Watch. In fact, the next three requesters and litigators combined don't equal what we do. And among those are people that people would think, oh, they must do a lot of work in this area, like the American Civil Liberties Union, right? ACLU is a big operation. So the next three combined don't equal what we're doing either on the requester side, just trying to get information and then reviewing and processing documents, or the times when we decide that we have to fight over it and you and your colleagues go into court and litigate and, and use the legal process, the court, to pressure these agencies into turning over records. And so, you know, I'm very proud of that. That's something I think as an, as an organization uh, that really is a, puts us in a position where we're doing more than anyone else to try to get these records. Why are we to get these records? Well, 
because we want to educate the public about the operations of government. We're, we want to be able to have a conversation about this. Someone just raided the former president's house. Well, hold on a second. We have experience in this. We've gone through this process from the initial request through to your arguments in front of the judge through the order. I mean, this is all, it seems like it's obscure history, but guess what? All of a sudden, yeah. it matters very much. You never know when it's going to matter. Exactly. So, Michael Bikesha, thank you very much for your time and efforts uh, 12 years ago, 13 <laughs> years ago, and today. We appreciate it very much. Thank and you. Have me back when I win a case next time. We will. Next time there's a big win, we'll have you come in and we'll, uh, we'll discuss it in excruciating detail. Excellent. <laughs> I'm Chris Farrell on Watch. Thanks for listening to Chris Farrell's On Watch podcast. For more information, visit www.judicialwatch.org because no one is above the law.